Hello, Habit Podcast listeners. Jonathan Rogers here. I just wanted to let you know about a new online class that starts October 13th. In Writing with Feechies, I'll walk writers through my novel, The Bark of the Bog Owl, with the goal of sharing some of the practical things I learned from writing my first book. It promises to be the swampiest writing course you've ever taken. Find out more at thehabit.co slash bogowl. That's thehabit.co slash B-O-G-O-W-L. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Russell Moore is a national treasure. He wades into the insanity of public discourse and speaks with good sense, clear logic, generosity, and courage. He's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's also the author of several books, including a brand new one titled The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Talking to Russell Moore makes me feel a little more courageous. Russell Moore, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for having me. I am really excited about uh, your book. That's By the time this this podcast releases, your book will have released, The Courage to Stand, um, and the subtitle, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. Um, let's, I, I want to start with that subtitle because it, it seems to imply that facing your fear, uh, when you face your fear, there's a risk of losing your soul, um, which, of course, depends on how you face your fear. Yeah. So, can you tell me more about that? I mean, what's what's the risk in facing your fear? That sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I think the I think the risk is trying to find a way to evade fear in ways that ultimately uh, ultimately whittle away the conscience and, and whittle away who you actually are. And so, I think there are some people who, when they come into contact with fear, sort of immediately lean into the limbic system. And into a sense of uh, fighting and outrage and mm-hmm. and so forth. And I think some of that has to do with um, when you when you find somebody who is unusually quarrelsome and is always in the middle of a of a conflict. I think there's a there's a tendency to think, well, this is a fearless person. When we know yeah. that's not at all the case. This is usually somebody who is. Uh, more fearful than someone else, yeah. but the adrenaline is uh, yeah. is the way to is the way to address it, and not just the fear of what's going on on the outside. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, Walker Percy talks about in in Moviegoer, uh, Binks Bowling going into the library and reading the conservative and liberal political magazines, not because he had any political viewpoint of his own, but because the fight between them gave him some sense of life, that, that uh-huh. hatred meant life. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of people, that sense of, of uh, fighting uh, or arguing or perpetual outrage is, uh, is almost an approximation of life uh-huh. uh, for a, a short period of time, sort of the lightning into the the decaying flesh monster for a while, but it, but it can't, it can't be sustained. Mm-hmm. And then I think other people simply move into a kind of avoidance and I, I want to get through life distracting myself as Blaise Pascal would talk about, just distracting myself from whatever it is that I'm, I'm fearful of. 
in a way that also is is deadening and maddening. And so I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of risks involved with how we choose to process beer. We don't get to choose whether or not we have beer, and we don't get to we don't, don't ultimately get to choose whether or not we'll face it. But we do get to choose how we do so. Yeah, yeah. This this is a podcast, of course, about writing for writers, mm-hmm. and so I don't want to reduce your you know thesis about fear, you know, simply strictly to the kinds of fear that writers face. But I do want to talk about it at least yeah. a little bit. And I, yeah. I know that your your book has this jumping off place, um, the story of Elijah. Yeah. Um, after he's faced down the you know the prophets and. And he's, you know, feeling uh, lonely and vulnerable and irrelevant, which sounds kind of like just a regular day for a writer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to, yeah, I want to hear more about that. Yeah. I think it, it, it in some ways sounds like a, a regular day for a writer, but I think a lot of writers assume that uh, that's something to be transcended and yeah. the the vulnerability yeah. and the loneliness and the sense of irrelevance that that's something that I have to get around and that's one of the reasons yeah. why I think uh, I think fear uh, is something that keeps us either from writing I find myself when I'm unable to write for long periods of time and I I'm just um, yeah I'm in that stage right now where I'm supposed to be working on something uh, but it's not here yet, and I just I find myself. I spent uh, I don't know how many hours over the summer culling my library and getting rid of books that I don't need anymore. And I realized uh, that was really not about making room as much as it was trying to find a relatively mindless task that, yeah. <laughs> that I could yeah. that I could achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think there's a sense of um, having having a a view of oneself in light of either comparing oneself to someone else or to what you think your audience is going to receive, all those fears are what ultimately either either keep you from writing or cause you to write something other than what it is you actually want to say. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I, I based that just recently with uh, recording the audiobook for uh, for this book because I found myself it was an excruciating process because every sentence I would read I would want to rethink. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you should try doing reading your audiobook from that you wrote ten years ago. Oh yeah, I'm sure that yeah. was really painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I kept seeing things that like things that I've been teaching writers to do in the meantime that I didn't, uh, that actually just didn't even know when I wrote, you know, the novels that I, that I read the audio books for and just cringed in some places. Um, anyway, sorry, I I didn't mean to make this about my audio books. Uh, I'm excited about your audio. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're reading your own audio book. Well, you know, the reason I am is because. Uh, my wife insisted on it mm-hmm. because she had so many people who would listen to other audiobooks where there would be someone 
you know, with a Minnesota accent uh, talking about <laughs> growing up in South Mississippi or something, yeah, like, right. something yeah. like that. So yeah. It's just too bizarre. Why don't you, uh, why don't you read it? But I don't, I don't know that I'm going to do it again. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you were, you were headed down an idea that I don't, I don't think you finished talking about. And that is, you said we have it in our heads. We have to get over the vulnerability and the loneliness and the feelings of irrelevance. And I think you're, you're heading someplace interesting that I'm not sure you got there yet. So I'm, I'm trying to put you back on, on that. Well, I think, I think if you look at uh, the way, for instance, uh, in the Elijah narrative, uh, what God is, is saying repeatedly to Elijah is, what are you doing here, Elijah? And at the end of it, uh, what you, what, what the reader realizes is that God was doing in that, in that wilderness experience, that response to fear, he was doing for Elijah exactly what Elijah had been doing, uh, on Mount Carmel when he had this moment of what we would all long to have. I, you know, I speak the word and fire falls from heaven and, and I'm vindicated in front <laughs> That's of... That's what we're all uh, shooting for when we write. Yes, it? yes, I'm vindicated in front of everybody. But uh, that would be a dangerous place uh, for anyone to be. That, mm-hmm. he, that had to be removed from him. And so I'm struck by how often in scripture, fear is revelatory. Uh, yeah. I mean, even... Luke 2, the, the, the very familiar Christmas narrative, uh, I grew up with the King James Version because we didn't know there were any other uh, versions. And I tend to find myself sort of retranslating uh, any scriptural text back into King James, <laughs> and especially Luke 2, and yeah. the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Yeah. Well, you have fear working itself out uh, in the in the Christmas narrative, both with the shepherds and with Herod, uh-huh. he's oh, afraid yeah. when he hears uh, the word from the Magi that uh, a, a son of the house of David has been born, and that fear then uh, expresses itself in this violence. Yeah, the shepherds, on the other hand, also experience fear, but then it's uh, it's followed up with fear not, for I bring you. Uh, good, uh, great, great, good tidings of great joy. I mean, that, that seems to be a pattern that happens throughout uh, scripture is that God allows us to experience the fear and in the fear to find the revelation. Uh, you, you sink beneath the water until you cry out uh, and you're pulled back up. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a pattern uh, that, that God repeats. Uh, not just throughout scripture, but throughout, uh, throughout all of our lives. And that's one of the reasons why I think when one looks back over life and says, where are the turning point moments where I really uh, came to a new understanding or experience of God or of my calling or what? They're usually in very scary, uh, yeah. perilous times. Yeah. They're usually not in moments that feel like triumph to us. Mm-hmm. And that's almost by definition. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that moment of that inflection point means I'm whatever I was used to, I'm not doing anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. That's great. Um, relevance. 
uh, we've, we've mentioned relevance more than once already. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's a place I want to dig in for a little while mm-hmm. because it's, um, what do you mean when you, when you say, when you speak of relevance, how, how do you define that, that term or the desire for relevance? What is it that we're desiring when we desire relevance? I think what we desire is to be a central character in the plot line around mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. And, and to ensure that that's the case. And I think that what happens in the way of, of holiness is a decentering of that. Uh, so what, what strikes me is that what I would expect when I came back to First Kings 19 and to Elijah on the run mm-hmm. with new eyes is the fact that the story didn't resolve the way I would have wanted it to, which is with God saying to Elijah, yes, you're in the right. Here is what I'm going to do. He doesn't say any of that. He tells Elijah about how his own purposes are going to come about, but he talks about it in terms of other people, Elisha. Mm-hmm. Hazael, other people. Oh, yeah. He doesn't even tell Elijah where his own story is going. And as a matter of fact, his own story becomes really mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just suddenly gone in a whirlwind and uh, doesn't show up again, except in hints and guesses until the transfiguration. Uh, and so I think there's a sense of um, of wanting to make sure that I am. Uh, central to to whatever little little plot of ground I have hmm. uh, in a way that causes us to become frantic about it. Um, you know, it's one of the things I see a lot of times. I will have uh, there'll be a younger minister who will hmm. say, "Oh, great situation! I've been called onto the staff of this church. The pastor there is going to be retiring sometime within the next few years." And uh, I'm going to serve alongside him as co-pastor until he decides to retire. And then I'm going to be the senior pastor. Uh, There are maybe two times where I've seen that go well. (laughs) Every other time it's been a disaster. And why? Uh, It's not because the the older minister is exceptionally evil. Uh, He's not plotting anything. Uh, It's just that he sees his own mortality. Uh, and he can't see who he is apart from this particular place that he's been called to serve. Yeah, man. And so he starts to become fearful of that, and he wants to hold on to it and conserve it in a way that ultimately ends up being self-destructive and other destructive. And the more I've seen that, the more I realize that that actually is going on with all of us all of the time. Yeah. And, and it's not just an end-of-life thing. It's an It's an... It's an always um, thing in every one of our lives. I want to, and it's also in terms of, I remember uh, one of the most liberating conversations I ever had was with this older uh, man. And I was working through a situation in my life where I felt like I had made the wrong decision. Uh, It wasn't a big issue. It wasn't a big life or death issue, but it was just, I thought I'd made the wrong decision and I just kept going back and looking at that decision and saying, what if I'd done the other thing instead of this? And what he said to me was, he said, you know, your problem is 
you have a really narrative uh, view of your life and of the world, and that's okay. But the problem is you think that you need to resolve the plot line. Mm. And you're never necessarily going to be able to do that. And so what you have to do is to make peace with the fact that you may not see this plot line resolved. Yeah. That there's a bigger plot going on that, that you don't have access to. And that I walked away from that. It was one of those, there are very few moments in your life where you walk away and say what he just said has changed my life. But yeah. that was one of them because wow. I realized that actually is uh, something that's going on all the time. I want to make sure that I know that the plot lines are resolved because I'm a Christian theist, but uh, I want to be able to see how they're resolved yeah. uh, and to have control over that, which is a form of idolatry. Yeah. And I, that had to be, that had to be taken away from me. That's great. I, I remember uh, reading something this was actually from the, uh, some 17th century writer who was talking about um, when you are upset at, you know, that, that you've decided that the, that the, the world is, is, you know, gone to hell in a handbasket and it's never going to recover. You are like a person storming out at act four of a comedy. Yeah. This is such a wreck. Right. You know, and I, I hate this, I hate this play and I'm leaving. Yeah. And, you know, or for, you know, the, the person who, who storms out before the, just before the last commercial or just for the next last commercial of a, of a sitcom, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, well, and I, I that's the way those, that's the way a comedy works is it, it's a mess and then it resolves at the end. Right. 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 And it's also, I mean, to go back to writing, uh, I think a lot about uh, Seth Godin, uh, whose work I, I read, I read just about everything that he, he does. And yeah, he's, he's fantastic. And he talks about um, walking into a coffee shop in Los Angeles where you can find uh, screenwriters mm-hmm. all over the place who are there on their laptops and they're working on their screenplays. But he says, if you go up and say, okay, send it to me, L- let me look at it or let me send it to someone else. Uh, how many of them will say no? Yeah. And the reason for that is because they actually would rather fail while telling themselves, I've written a magnificent, a magnificent screenplay that the rest of the world just doesn't know about yeah. than they would to actually uh, put that out into the world and be told, this isn't good. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or we don't like this. And I, I think there's something of that pull um, not necessarily with what we're writing, but with uh, with all sorts of things that we do, where there's this sense of, um, I want to make sure before I exercise whatever my gifts are, I want to make sure that it is received the way I want it to be received. Uh, and I want to make sure I'm in control of, of all of those things. And that's just not the way that uh, that life or art works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm trying to decide if if this is if we moved away from relevance. You know, there's a there's the pull on the one hand, the the desire to get one's work out there is one way to feel relevant. Yeah, 
And on the other hand, there is, if I don't feel, you know, if, if it doesn't do what I, if I, you know, the fear of it not doing for me what I want it to do for me keeps me from putting it out there yeah. at all. Well, I think in, those in are the case. It's, 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 it's a revolves around the idea that, that my work is going to do something for me. Right? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. I, okay. I think it, it can also be even with people who are, uh, who are other directed, mm-hmm. uh, there can be a misreading of audience um, in a way where one assumes that the audience that matters is whatever audience I can see right now. Mm. And so what, what God is saying to Elijah is there are 7,000 people uh, I've left for myself a remnant. It's none of your business who they are. Uh-huh. Uh, just do what, what it is I've told you to do. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about this a lot when uh, Willie Nelson uh, was, uh, I, I was reading. Now we're getting somewhere. What's that? Yeah. Now I was re- reading an account not long ago about Willie Nelson uh, when he was in Nashville uh-huh. uh, and about how miserable he was trying yeah. to live up to uh, the Nashville musical establishment. And uh, someone, uh, it was in Ken Burns' uh, country music uh, documentary, uh, maybe Chris Christopherson I, or Waylon Jennings, I can't remember who said this, but said all the while that Willie was in Nashville, he was sort of writing these messages in a bottle that he was uh-huh. just sending out, uh, n- not knowing that they were ever being picked up. And it wasn't until he got to Texas that he realized that all those messages were being received and his people were out there and he never would have been able to speak to them if he had simply uh, decided to sound just like Jim Reeves or, or or to do whatever it is that it, that was expected of him. And I think that's, I think that's true really uh, for, for almost everyone. Uh, There's a way that you can sacrifice a future audience or an invisible audience for the audience of people that are right in front of you at the moment that scare you. Um, And and so I think of, um, I think of, um, I went to a retirement party for a pastor I respect who had been fired from two really prestigious churches uh, in his life felt like a complete failure mm. and went and planted a church where he became this sort of uh, fatherly figure to people who wouldn't fit in, in sort of typical evangelical circles that he had, that he had always served before. And it was just striking to see he never would have been able to minister to these people or they to him if uh, his life had gone the way that he wanted it to go, or if he had simply adjusted himself to whatever audiences uh, he was afraid of at the time. I, I, I think that's true uh, for all of us in, in ways that we often can't see. Yeah, no, I, I love that insight that, you know, the, the, the difference between the audience that we see in front of us, we know as our audience, and, and I don't know what the, what's the other... If, if that's the one side, I guess maybe our true audience or our uh, whatever the other category is, I think it's really helpful to, to think about. 
Well, and I think if you think about um, Peter Berger uh, wrote in uh, the sociologist in Solemn of uh, Noise of Solemn Assemblies back during the Jim Crow era about how, uh, why is it that all of these churches adjusted themselves to Jim Crow, either through active support of it or through uh, silence? Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was talking not particularly about the lay people at that point, but about the clergy mm-hmm. who often knew better yeah. uh, in terms of, of what scripture teaches and so forth. And he said the way that it works is not that you had people who were deciding to violate their consciences. It was that they were adjusting their consciences ahead of time because of the audience that was in front of them. And often with these little bargains that they would make to themselves, well, you know, if I speak to this, uh, it's only going to cause a conflagration and I'll be fired and then I'll be replaced with somebody uh, who's, who's a lot worse on segregation yeah. issues. So I'm going to bide my time and conserve my influence uh, in such a way that those people who thought that they were conserving their influence for later on, uh, never had it. They they couldn't speak to the people uh, who were coming down the line because those people had watched them and had said, you know, do you really have news? Uh, Are are you really being shaped and formed by something transcendent? or, uh, Or are you finding protection in the herd that surrounds you which is a, a really Darwinian, social Darwinian view of the universe that, that one can find anywhere. Yeah. And so it, it, it ends up, uh, the very thing that you're trying to, as Jesus says, if you, if you try to save your life, uh, if you want to uh, save your life, lose it. And if you try yeah. to save your life, yeah, you will lose it. I mean, that, that's exactly what happens with all of these uh, ways that we try to become what our audience wants us to be. And that's, I mean, to go back to, to Seth Godin, he talks about this in terms of uh, the way that what people want to do is to say, let me find what the world out there wants mm-hmm. and adjust to that. Well, that's already there. Uh, y- yeah. y- you, don't need, uh, you don't need that uh, least. Cup. What they actually need is the way that, that God has uniquely gifted you uh, which means that often you're going to receive uh, people who don't get what you're doing yeah. or who don't initially like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And everybody that you know who's ultimately made a difference in whatever uh, arena have always been people who have persevered uh, through people who were saying, you're, you're doing this wrong. Uh, or, or you shouldn't be saying this, or you shouldn't be doing that. And I think that's true. Yeah. Wow. That's that is that's great. I love this idea that that you're the danger of preserving your influence by accommodating to your audience. That it just doesn't work. And 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 I I would have never. Uh, well, I don't know. That, I, I, let's just say I have never made the connection between that and the idea of of losing your life to save it. Hmm. That's. That's really helpful. I shall uh, put that in my pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, um, 
you produce, you're very productive. You, you write a lot of articles and books and podcasts and stuff. Um, what are the, what are the, the disciplines and liturgies that, that make it possible for you to, to keep producing? Of course, you, you've, you've implied that at the moment you're not producing something you need, feel like you need to be producing. Yeah, it's, it's difficult for me because what I find is that, and this is not anything that I commend to anybody else because I know that the way that I do it is not the way that I should do it, much less anyone else. But yeah. something almost has to incubate uh, in me for a long period of time, and it has to be... Uh, I have to be sort of mulling something while I don't think I'm mulling it. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to almost trick myself uh, into that before I can, uh, before I can actually uh, produce. But uh, one of the things that I've had to do is I work best when I have an unfixable, uh, unchangeable, uh, deadline in front of me and not a trick deadline. So I can't <laughs> fool myself with, you know, well, you have to have it. So for instance, one of the things I did and the reason I did it, I started a uh, newsletter uh, because often I would have all sorts of things that I would want to write about that I would say, I'm going to write about that later on. Yeah. And then I would make a file about it. And then, you know, I would notice it five years later. Uh, yeah. that yeah. is still there. So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a weekly newsletter where I'm just going to write about whatever I want to write about yeah. uh, every single week. And that was really helpful to me. I was sick uh, this past week with just some non-serious uh, thing. And I thought, you know, I don't really have anything to say this week. I'm just going to skip it. But I said, I'm not going to do that. Because if I do, then I'm going to create a precedent for myself where yeah. I can say, well, you can always skip it. So yeah. just having that every single Monday, this is going out, yeah. um, has turned out to be, the structure of it has turned out to be really freeing yeah. for me in getting around procrastination. How long have you been doing that now? Mm, uh, well, we're on uh, issue 17, so 17 uh -huh. weeks. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, frankly, the pandemic, and I say this without, uh, I have to always qualify this. The pandemic is awful and horrible. But for me, mm -hmm. uh, not the pandemic, but the quarantine aspect of it was life-giving and enabled me to, uh, in many ways, get my life back. Yeah, yeah. I have I found in the, in the quarantine era, uh, just being so present with what's going on in my yard, you know, I mean, yeah. the birds and the, I've got 15 caterpillars on my desk right now because I found them on my dill plant and realized they're going to turn into swallowtail butterflies. And mm. I wouldn't have noticed that, um, right. you know, last, this time last year. Right. Right. Um, and um, so, and the newsletter, I found the newsletter, you know, I've got a newsletter too. And I, yeah. that, that's just been transformative for me to and, and to, to have people who are expecting something from me. And that, that that's another Seth Godin principle is expected. You know, your people are expecting some communication from you. That's exactly and right. Who aren't giving me money. I mean, right. 
But when it's when I'm writing something that you know, when someone's paying me to write something, I always miss those deadlines because I usually have enough money at that moment, and then when I run out of money, then I then I do it. Yep. But when it feels something more like friendship, you know, like right, there are people who expect things from me the way friends expect things from each other. Yeah, it has been very. That's really made a difference for me. I've I've never done any writing consistently. And I'm now up to about what 130 weeks in a row that I've written this letter. I've never, I've never hidden, I've never hit 10 weeks in a row at anything ex- yeah. before this this letter. And it enables a kind of it, it's it's different from uh, it, it's almost the inverse of social media, mm-hmm. uh, where what I find with social media is I. I started off, you know, in say 2008 uh, on Twitter. Yeah. And the people who at that time uh, followed me on Twitter were people who knew, you know, knew me in, in one sense. Uh, and so they knew what it was that they were expecting. Mm-hmm. So I could, I could make an offhand comment that didn't need a bunch of qualification. And then as time goes on, you start to realize, uh, oh, wait, if you are, uh, I was, um, I remember when this started to turn was when I was with a a friend who is um, well known as a kind of ascetic, uh, uh, simple life sort of person. And I said, uh, joking, driving around in his new Bentley, which of course, you know, anybody who knew him and knew me would know I'm. I'm making fun of him. Uh, but you had all of these. That is such hypocrisy that he oh. would have a Bentley. It's just, it's like, okay, wait, this medium <laughs> isn't working for me uh, yeah. anymore. Yeah. But the, the newsletter format, um, you actually are able to start to learn to know based on the, the responses that come in, who you're talking to. Yeah. And there are people who sign up for. Uh, who it is that that you are and the sorts of interests that you have. And I just think it works uh, Mm -hmm. better in a way I probably wouldn't have predicted just a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I I love the newsletter format and don't, I mean, yeah, I post a little bit on uh, Facebook and that kind of stuff, but, but not, not really. It's it's the newsletter is kind of my, I feel like that's my, my place to, reach the world to be relevant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other part of it too is what I tricked myself into um, is to say to myself, to say to the readers, this is all first draft. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm writing this newsletter and I'm just inviting you in to think along with me, but yeah. nothing here is final. Uh, yeah. I, I, we're sort of showing our work, but we're grappling with things. Yeah. Which is necessary for me because what I found is I learned from, you know, morning pages uh, idea. Uh, what was helpful to me about that was writing a sort of, for lack of a better word, journal, but not being able to go back and look at it. So and you write the morning pages and then discard the morning discard pages? Discard them. Yeah. And is it's that really, one of the rules of morning pages? Well, it's you don't necessarily have to discard them, but you you don't go back and look at them, uh-huh. and you don't you don't have them for anybody else. Yeah. And because I'll go back and I'll look at old. I used to keep a journal 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, early on. I'll go back and look at that. The parts of it that are useful are the most banal parts. Yes. You know, this day is the day yes. that we, you know, whatever. But all of the um, sort of interpretation or my reflections on my feelings, I can read that and say, you are posing yeah. because you're writing this for your future self to see or for somebody else to see. And so you're constructing it around all of those expectations. Yeah. And so I had to say, I've got to find a way to write this stuff where my future self will never see it and no one else will ever see it. Yeah. And so for the newsletter, what I've, what I've sort of done is to say to people, this isn't my statement on whatever. Uh, yeah. This isn't going to be necessarily talking about anything that's going on right now in the world. This is just going to be, hey, here I am and here are some things I'm thinking about it. What do you think? How do you communicate that idea that this is just a first try? Like, is, like in your welcome email, you mean? Or I did in the welcome email and then just in sort of the way that sometimes the way that I'll put it is to say, I'm not sure what I think about this yet, mm-hmm. but here are sort of the ways that I'm, that I'm processing it. Or even a lot of what I do is to take questions from people mm-hmm. and to give myself the freedom to say, I don't know the answer to your question. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for instance, we had this last week, some, uh, someone wrote in and said that uh, this person had a friend who was a deist now and wanted to know how to. And I said, you know, uh, here's one of the places where I was wrong. I used to make fun of that question. When I would have students who would say, how will you respond to, to deism? And I would say, well, stop doing time travel because <laughs> you know, once you get out of the 18th century, there aren't any deists around him. There's no reason to be a deist now. Uh, but actually, uh, I'm finding that question coming up uh, mm-hmm. more and more. So I just had to go through and say, I don't know because it depends on whether the person you're talking to, which direction they're going. Uh, it, it might be that you're talking to somebody who's an atheist agnostic who's saying that just isn't working for me anymore, but they're scared to go any further. Uh-huh. Or you might be talking to somebody who comes out of a religious background for whom God just doesn't feel personal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are two very different things. But to say, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but here are some of the things that I would just think that helps me to get away from the idea that what I'm saying here is the definitive word that I have for you on whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when it comes to I, I, what you're talking about, I think in terms of drafts, like I, you know, I always tell my students, stop waiting to start writing. You know, don't wait until you've got it figured out before you start writing. You've got to wade into exactly. it. Um, but you're you're taking that another step, right? I mean, because one of the way one of the ways I talk to students is, hey, nobody's going to see this. You can just kind of wait around and figure it out. And you know how you, yeah. it's it's page four. You finally write, write something smart, and then you can re- reorganize around that. Yeah. Um, but you're uh, you're that's it takes a certain amount of courage to to throw it out there. Well, or to say what I found myself doing often is to say, I'm going to save this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to save it until it's the exact right moment to say it yeah. or until I am really confident that I am, 
I am saying what I want to say uh, yeah. about this. Yeah. And this was a way to just sort of take that away from myself mm-hmm. and say, that's not. Because what I would do is I would never then get to that point. Yeah. But what I would find is if I'm, you know, one of the big creative um, sparks for me uh, is, is something I don't get to do anymore. And it's teaching Sunday school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because uh, as I'm teaching Sunday school and I say, uh, what questions do you all have? And then things come up uh, and I'm dialoguing with people about that and grappling with that. Well, what does, um, well, how would this, what would this mean for me when I just found out that I was adopted? Someone said at one point, I just found out I was adopted, uh, he said, and I found out that my mother uh, was a drug addicted prostitute who doesn't want to see me. Okay. Well, working through that with that person, uh, there's something there that actually applies to a lot of people in in all sorts of ways. Um, and so that, that's, that's just better, at least for me than saying, here is my viewpoint on fill in the blank. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, I think it's really helpful to think in terms of, you know, creativity or ideas as being a river and not a reservoir, you know, yeah. that, that as you, that they, that it flows, it, it changes, it moves. Um, and, and, you know, the, the idea of saving up for the perfect time is kind of a reservoir mentality that if, if, if I don't, yeah. if I don't, um, if I spend it now, it's going to be gone when the truth right. is when you spend it, something else comes behind it. Right. And, um, there's always more where that came from. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and, and it multiplies rather than, than subtracts. Yeah. All right. We're running out of time. I got to ask you my last question. The last question I ask everybody, who okay. are the writers who make you want to write Russell? Uh, Frederick Buechner, mm-hmm. uh, Dostoevsky, uh, brothers Karamazov has been huge in my life. Uh, and one of those things and that making I can, you want to write. Yes. To read that it, and say, I want to go. Not write. that I want to go write that. Yeah. But it, it takes me somewhere mm-hmm. that puts me in contact with something mm-hmm. uh, that, that's there. So I, I never, I never read Brothers Karamazov and say I want to write something like that at all. <laughs> yeah, but right. it it alters me uh, in that way. Um, Wendell Berry mm-hmm. uh, is one. Uh, Willie Morris, mm-hmm. uh, uh, my uh, fellow Mississippian, uh, especially. Uh, his interviews and things. I, I tend uh, to do that. Uh, yeah. Walker Percy yeah. uh, always does. Um, yeah. uh, there, there are other, there's a there's a poet um, named uh, a, a poet living now named David White, um, whose mm-hmm. whose work uh, meant a lot to me at a really dark time in life. I just happened upon um, really uh, it was a an an audio essay that he had done. And then I, I went back and looked at his, his work uh, and his stuff uh, often uh, makes me want to, to write. I find, I find poets really make me want to go write something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, I, it's never a poem because I look right. at what they do and I think I can't really do what that guy or that woman just did, but I want to go do something. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. 
con you know, concerts do the same thing, musical concerts. I, they don't make me want to be a musician, but they do make me want to, you know, do my thing. Yeah. Well, Russell Moore, thank you so much for being on The Habit. And I hope we can get together in person one of these days, uh, not on Zoom. That sounds great. Thank you for having me. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.